0: So we are in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and we have been in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 all summer long. And we got there because we did the book of Hebrews during the year before we started meeting outside because we started chapter 11 when we started meeting outside and chapters one through 10 of Hebrews talks about faith But it talks about faith in Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done for us. That he has worked salvation for us. That we are saved by the work of Jesus. The book of Hebrews shows that Jesus is the way and he is better than any system. It starts out by saying Jesus is better than the ancient prophets. He's better than angels. He's better than the patriarchs. He's... uh, better than the temple. He's better than the priests. He's better than the high priests. He's better than the tabernacles. He's better than anything. He's a savior that saves to the uttermost. Everything that we need for salvation was worked in Jesus Christ at the cross. He's given us salvation. We are saved. Or maybe you're not saved. It could be that you're here this morning and you're not saved. Your relationship with God has not been reconciled. That word saved The Greek word, New Testament was written in Greek, is sozo, transliterated, S-O-Z-O, which means wellness, wholeness. It means that we're connected again to our creator. And you're not connected again to your creator until you decide you want to be connected to your creator. You say yes to Jesus, to the work that he did for you, forgiving your sins, to reconcile you to God. But for those of us who are in that position and going through, Chapters 1 through 10 of Hebrews, now we're in a different part of Hebrews. But it's still faith. It's still faith. There it's faith in Jesus Christ to save us. Chapters 11 going forward are that it's, it's walking by faith. So uh, let's just uh, look at it and read it. Where we are today, chapter 11. We'll start from the beginning. And it says, faith is confidence in what we hope for, an assurance of what we have not seen. This is what the ancients were commended for. Then it goes on and we went through all of these people. We went through one of the ancients, Abel, one of the ancients, Enoch, one of the ancients, Noah, one of the ancients, Abraham, one of the ancients, a guy named Isaac. And this is going all the way back to the beginning of time. And we brought it back to the fertile crescent, to the cradle of civilization, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, where it says that human history begins. And we go all the way back there and God finds an individual, Abraham, and he's going to make him a promise. He's going to make him a great nation. And through him, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed because through his family tree, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come. So that's where we are. The description of faith, we sort of paraphrased it, and we said that faith is confidence that God will do what God has said he will do regardless of circumstances or situations. What's faith? That confidence that God will do what God said he will do regardless of circumstances or situations around us. And he's made great promises to us that we will be with him forever and ever, Jesus said, if it were not so, I would not have told you that in my Father's house are many mansions, and I go there to prepare a place for you. What a promise he has for us. Eternal life, and life with him, life everlasting. Not only that, Jesus said that that we would experience life and life abundantly, not only eternal life, but good life here, the good life. So faith isn't new. It worked for the ancients. If these people were ancient 2,000 years ago when we're reading the book of Hebrews, then they're definitely ancients now because we are reading accounts of people who, right about now, it's probably 4,000 years old. So, what are we going to get? What are we going to learn from somebody that walked with God 4,000 years ago? What is there to learn from that? Well, We're in a long string, a long succession of those who have had faith in God and walked with God. We're not the first ones. They've done it before. So we are looking at the family of Abraham 4,000 years ago. This guy whose family were idol worshipers living in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, living in the, the cradle of civilization where God calls him out, makes these great promises to him. Not only to him, but to his family. What promises did he make? He said, I'm going to give you this land. Stone is as the land of Israel. He said, I'm going to make your name great. Is his name great? We're saying his name right now. And we're going to find that the name of his kids are great. Abraham, Isaac, all kinds of people name Isaac. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the grandkid. All kinds of people name Jacob. Their names are great. That I will bless those who, who bless you. I will curse those who curse you all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, through Jesus. This family is going to have an inheritance where through that family, God was going to preserve them through thick and thin, and through that family tree, the Messiah Jesus would come. But before we get there, there's always circumstances, there's always trials, there's always things going on. And so we're going to read about this family. We're going to go on to verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. So that's where we start. We start with Jacob and Esau. And then we jump to Jacob, who we're going to look at his life of faith and what it looked like. By faith... When he was dying, when he's dying, when Jacob's old and he's dying, he has faith then. He's gone through an awful lot before he gets to the place where he's dying. And we're going to look at a lot of his life, what happened in his life. But when he was dying by faith, he blessed each of Joseph's sons. He blessed his kids. He blessed his grandkids by faith because he believed that the promise that God gave to him that he had not yet seen, the promise of possessing the land and thriving in the land, the promise of blessing all of the nations, he had not yet seen that. But he believes God. And so he blesses his sons and he blesses the grandkids that are there. And it says, and he worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. So he needs some support. He's old but he's worshiping God. So we're gonna jump into Genesis and do a little bit of verse by verse hard work in Genesis so that we can see what exactly is going on with this story. So all of that big long introduction, now we get into the story of Jacob's life, about 4,000 years ago. So if you're following on the app, then it's already there for you, The, the passage is already there for you. If you're not, we're in Genesis chapter 25. And this is what we're going to read. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethiel. Verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she had no children. The Lord answered his prayer. And his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies, plural, jostled within her. And she said, what is this that's happening to me? What is going on in my body? This is crazy. What is going on inside of me? So she went and she inquired to the Lord and she said, what in the world is going on? And he said, there's two nations in your womb. There's two people from within you that will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. That's what's going on. That's what God said. Two nations, not two people, two nations. They're going to become peoples. Verse 24, when the time came for her to give birth, there were two boys in her womb. The first one came out red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. And so they named him Esau, which basically means hairy guy. (laughs) Any hairy guys here? (laughs) Verse 26, after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. And so they named him Jacob, which means the one who grabs the heel makes sense. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter. Keep that in mind. Put that in the tickler file. Esau becomes a skillful hunter. A man of the open country. He's an outdoors person. While Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents, Isaac had a taste for wild game. He's a hunter. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, he loved Esau. So dad loves the wild son. But Rebecca loved Jacob. So uh, two different sons. Dad loves one of the boys and mom loves the other one. That's going to be a problem. You think? Dad loves this kid, the wild man, and mom loves this boy. They're completely different. They're completely different. If we were to stand up at that driveway when all of the cars were coming in and we were tasked with deciding which car is carrying Esau... In which car is carrying Jacob, what would we do? Probably the pickup that's lifted up the highest. The one that's blaring death metal music out of it. <laughs> the one with a gun rack in the back of it. The guy who jumps out with this sleeveless t-shirt and the boots. It's probably Esau. Now, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say what other kind of car maybe Jacob was driving. A minivan. (laughs) Maybe, maybe a minivan playing, playing Barry Manilow at about 70 decibels. (laughs) And uh, he's got all the girls with him. He's got his mom with him, right? He's a He's a mama's boy and he likes to stick around with his mom. And we're going to find various occasions where he's in the tents with his mom and he's cooking. His mom's probably got an apron for him and he probably gets flour on that apron and his mom probably makes sure that the flour is off of the sugar is off of his apron. Verse 28, Isaac, dad had a taste, had a taste for wild game. But Rebecca loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, he's home with his mom cooking stew. I drive a minivan. This occurred to me. <laughs> it's my wife's, though. So uh, there you go. It is. I drive it all the time, though. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. Was he really famished? And he said to Jacob, quick, get me some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why they also call him Edom, red. And Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. What did he mean? You see, in the ancient world, and still in many customs and cultures, the first one, the firstborn, always gets the blessing. Esau is the first one. God already said when he spoke to Rebekah, he told her that the older would serve the younger. It was going to turn backwards for them. It would be a a backwards situation. God already said that. But he said, Quick, let me have some stew. And Jacob said, Sell me your birthright. Facts on the ground, God had already given it to him. Verse 32 he said, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. What do I care about a birthright for? I don't care about a birthright. I'm going to die. I'm starved. Give me some of that food. And so Jacob said, no, no, you need to swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling him his birthright. And then Jacob gave him some bread and lentil stew. He just asked for the stew. He gave him some bread too. He ate and he drank and he got up and left. Seems like he didn't even say anything. Just that's how he is. Just ate, ate it all up. Then he left. And then Esau despised his birthright. He was like, what do I need that for anyway? So this story is going to come down to a couple of things. And we'll say what it comes down to now, and then we'll look at how those things develop. It's going to come down to the blessing that Jacob is going to give because he believes the promises of God after all of his trials and difficulty in the end of his life. And there's another thing that's going to happen, and that's a grudge. There's a 20-year grudge that's going to develop here. And the grudge is going to happen this way. You need to move forward to um, chapter 27. And we're not going to be able to read the whole passage, but here's what's going on in chapter 27. We'll read the first couple of verses. When Isaac was old, Dad, right? Dad is old, and his eyes were so weak he could no longer see. He called for Esau, his older son, and he said, my son. And he said, I'm here. And he said, look, I'm an old man, and I don't know the day of my death. Now then, talking to the son that he loves. He said, now then, get your equipment, your quiver and your bow. Go out into the open country to hunt for some game for me. Prepare me the tasty food I like and bring it to me so I can bless you before I die. So this guy's losing his sight. He can't see. He's blind. He thinks it's curtains for him. The way it plays out is he's got 20 more years of his life. That is sort of a difficult life. He's going to live for 20 years blind in the ancient world. It's a rough road to hoe. But he wants to bless this kid. He loves this kid and he wants to bless this kid. He wants to put a blessing upon him. And he tells him, you know, go out do some hunting, bring it, cook it for me. After you cook it, you know, I'm going to lay hands on you and I'm going to bless you. Well, mom is in the house and mom hears about this. And when mom hears about it, she says to her other son, Jacob, who's got his apron on, she said, son, your dad is going to give the blessing to your other brother." And so him and his mom conspire against dad and conspire against the brother. This house is messed up. You see, this chapter that we're reading, chapter 11 of Hebrews, if you were to read commentators, does anybody know what commentators are? Commentators are, they're just people just like you and me. They just have more time to study particular subjects. And a lot of the commentators study the Bible and the characters in the Bible and the doctrines in the Bible. And then they write a book of comments. They become commenters, uh, commentators. But around here, we just say they're just commentators. They have their opinions after having studied. And an awful lot of them will say about these people in Hebrews 11, these are the heroes of the faith. I don't think that they're heroes of the faith. I think they're people that walk by faith because a hero is somebody whose life you want to follow, somebody's life that you want to replicate, somebody whose life you want to be. You don't want to be like these guys. These guys are just people that have walked by faith. And so mom and Jacob are conspiring against dad and Esau. Do you think this story's going to be okay. There's a lot of trouble in that family. And so mom hears it. And she said, look, here's what we're going to do. Your brother's going to go out. He's going to go out and he's going to hunt something down. And then when he hunts it down, he's going to bring it home. He's, he's going to skin it. He's going to clean it. He's, he's going to cook that barbecue on that 18 hour smoker that he just bought for your dad. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to go out in the back and we're going to get a goat and we're going to cook it right now. And we're going to dress you up like your brother and you're going to get the blessing from your dad. What do you say? And the kid said, all right, mom, let's do it. So they do it. And she said, listen, when you go in to see your dad, you know, you're sort of soft. You've been in the kitchen all these years with me. So what we're going to do is we're going to take an animal That's hairy, and we're going to dress your arms up in that. So when you come near your dad, he'll feel the hairy arms. They do it. They do it. They're going to deceive the blind dad. Wow. Wow. Dad is blind, and Mom and Jacob are going to deceive him. And so he comes in, and he says, Dad, I got the food for you. He's looking for the blessing. And the dad is like, I don't know, like are you sure that you Esau? Because it sounds to me like you're Jacob. And he said, No. Nope, it's me. It's me, Esau. It's not Jacob, it's me. <laughs> your, voice, your voice betrays you. He said, Come over here. Let me tu- let me touch you and smell you. Because I love that stink that you carry around. And he touches him and he says, sure enough, it's the stink and the feel of Esau. He said, but I swear that's Jacob's voice. No, dad, it's it's me. Esau. I mean, Esau. All right. He blesses him. Gives him the blessing. Not, Not too long after, Esau comes in. He's got all the food cooked. And he said, dad, I got it ready. And he said, what? What's going on here? What's going on here? He said, I did what you told me to do. I went out, I got it all. Would you bless me? He said, I gave your blessing away already. I gave it to your brother. And I see now that your brother and your mother deceived me. But I blessed him. And he said, do you have anything for me, dad? And he said, no, you know, I blessed him. He Thinks he needs to keep his word. So here's what it says in chapter 27, verse 41. Esau, after this, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. What he's saying is, my dad's going to die pretty soon. And when my dad dies, I am going to kill my brother Jacob. I'm going to kill that kid. He is done. You think when Someone like Esau said that he was just like playing around? Or you think he's like dead serious about it? This guy's dead serious. Said when Rebekah uh, was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and she said, your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. I already did what you said, mom, and it's got me all this trouble go at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Now her brother Laban, she's just like her brother, always conniving, always deceiving, always coming up with some scheme. And so her brother's like that, she's like that, and she passes it down to the boy in the apron. She said, stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. Now, if you know anything about grudges and holding things for a long time, you think that his brother's going to forget about this? You think that his fury's going to subside? She said, when your brother's no longer angry, you think there's going to be a time where the brother's no longer angry and forgets what you did? And you think he's going to forget? I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in a day? So the kid runs off. What do you do? What do you do when your schemes and your plans and all of the things that you're doing to make things happen, what do you do when they fail? You do what Jacob does, you run. You run, he runs away. Runs away from home. Him and his mom had cooked up this scheme to get the blessing from the father. And they wanted the blessing from God. Did they think they could deceive and manipulate God? they're living away from the leadership of God. They're taking matters into their own hands. They're operating on the premise that many of us operate on, and if you don't watch out for you, who will? And how does the whole thing turn out? The whole thing backfires. In the house, Jacob and his mom end up with nothing. And his mom says, I'll call you back when things change. But things never do. And this is the last time they see each other. I'll let you know, when it's changed. So um, I'm going to let you in on something. So um, what's going on here? There's a lot of trouble in this family and there's a lot of pain in their hearts. I'm going to tell you what my pastoral assumption is. Like when you get up here and preach, like what's the assumption? I have a friend, Bill Elander is his name. Bill Elander was, was, is, you know, one of, one of the closest people I've had in my life. He knows so much about me. Pastored in New Haven, the Vineyard in New Haven. He was, in college, he was a communications major some 40 or 50 years ago. And he used to work for Campus Crusade for Christ in the days when they would use razor blades to, to slit film and then put it together. And as a communications major, he told me, because he's kind of a mentor to me, he said, when you're communicating from a pulpit or wherever, he said, when you're communicating, you need to communicate with 100% of the people 100% of the time. And I said, Bill, that's like the stupidest thing I ever heard. Like, how can you, how can you possibly communicate with 100% of the people 100% of the time? He said, if you're not going to communicate with 100% of the people 100% of the time, why are you even communicating? Just get out of there you're not going to communicate, get out of there. And so I argued it with him and argued it with him. And I think I got him down to 88%. How it got to 88, I don't know. But I think I got him down to 88. But he challenged me and I thought, I do need to have an assumption. Because I said to him, Bill, how can you do that? You don't know who you're talking to. You don't know the background of these people, their economic background, their educational background, their political leanings. You don't know what's happened to them in their life. You don't know what their family life was like. He said, it's up to you to figure it out. I said, well, how do you figure it out with, you know, you, you, maybe you're walking into a new situation. How do you? He said, you need to figure it out. I think I have figured it out for me, not for everybody, but for me. And so I have this pastoral assumption that's built on these kinds of stories in the Bible. Because this kind of story that's in the Bible, people of faith, it's the same story over and over again, just played out a different way with somebody else in another place and in another time. And the way that it's always played out is it's played out like this. This is my assumption, my pastoral preaching assumption is that every family has trouble and every heart has pain. Every family has trouble. Every heart has pain. That's why when you read about these people who are heroes of the faith, they're just people who are trying to make it to the end. They're just people who are trying to finish well. They're just people who really want to end it well and finish well and do it well on the way. And they mess up all over the place. Because every family has trouble and every heart has pain. And this family is no exception whatsoever. And the trouble that this family is having, they've done it to themselves. Because dad loved one kid... Mom loved the other. Mom and her, bro- her brother are both deceivers. She's passed that down to this boy. This boy deceives the other one who's got an anger problem. And man, it is a mess. The whole family is a mess. And when all of your plans end up high and dry, what do you do? You do what Jacob does. You just start to run, run away from it. Hope that will change everything. So the account with Jacob, what happens now, his walk of faith, is because he believes that God's going to do what God said he was going to do at the end. He believes God's going to do that, but he's in a mess. And so he begins this 20-year journey, 500 miles, where if we went line by line through the rest of the chapters, up to chapter 33 or so, You see that on this 20-year, 500-mile journey walking, he's going to meet God. And he's going to meet himself. And then he's going to meet up face-to-face with the brother that wants to kill him. Lots going to happen to this guy over the next 20 years. Esau's holding the grudge. And you get into chapter 28 and it begins his journey. And he's only beginning his journey of running and fleeing for 20 years. He's alone. He doesn't know where he's going. He just knows the direction to where her brother's house would be. He hasn't gone there. He doesn't know how to get there. He doesn't have any maps. He doesn't have Google maps or waves. Anybody use waves? Some people use waves. I use waves. Um, you know who taught me how to use waves? I was with a police officer who used to come to church and we were going to a pastor's conference actually together. And he was going with me and I was using Google Maps. And he said, why are you using Google Maps? I said, well, because we'll get me there. He said, use waves. This is a cop. And I said, why should I use waves? He said, because it'll tell you where all the cops are. That was from a cop. (laughs) So he doesn't have a map, this guy. And because his brother is a hunter, he doesn't know if his brother's behind him stalking him and is going to kill him out there in the wilderness somewhere. He's probably always looking behind his back, seeing what's going on. He's out in the open skies and in the outdoors. That's his brother's territory. He doesn't know anything about being underneath the stars. He doesn't know anything about living underneath the open uh, sky. He's always been the indoor type. He's the kid with an apron. He doesn't have a pillow. He, has a, he ends up getting a vision in a, a dream from God, and he doesn't have a pillow. I'm sure his mom had him a pillow. Out in the wilderness, he needs to make uh, pillows out of rocks. This kid, he's running, brought it upon himself. He has the promises of God, but he's brought all of this stuff upon himself. What's against him? Da- danger? Distance? The unknown? The unfamiliar? But those are the very things that often bring people to God, right? Distance, danger, the unknown, the unfamiliar. Recognizing our need. And so um, he's going to have an experience with God. And God is going to come to him. And he has all of the ingredients for a dream just waiting to happen. What are the ingredients of a dream waiting to happen? A hard trip, a long day, a guilty conscience, an uncomfortable bed, and he has a dream. Jacob is at this point the picture of the lost soul. He's in darkness, he's fleeing for his life, he's away from his father's house. That's not a picture of being away from God. He's burdened with sin. And he's ignorant of the fact that God is near him and God wants to save him. He's ignorant of that. He doesn't know that right in this situation that God is near him and God wants to save him. Geographically, he's in this barren, rocky area. Actually, in the account of uh, Jacob's life, the 20 years, there's seven accounts of God revealing himself to Jacob. Jacob. And and when he does this, he affirms the promise to him that he gave to Abraham, his grandfather, and his father, Isaac. He said, I am the God of your father, Abraham, and Isaac, and the promise I made to them, I'm making to you. You will inherit the land. Your name will be great. You will be blessed, and you will be a blessing to all of the peoples on the earth. He believes it, and he holds on to it but he's messed up. This guy is messed up. His life is messed up. God affirms the the, the covenant with him. God is going to keep his promises, but Jacob feels like he needs to scheme his life away. And God promises that he'll be with Jacob, but Jacob's still a long way from complete surrender. And, um, When Jacob has this dream, here's what he says. At the end of the dream, he said, I didn't realize that God was in this place. I didn't realize that God was in this place. We sing those songs. We sing sing songs about, you know, God being in this place. And I think a lot of times when we sing that, we're thinking, God is in this place. He's in the field, you know, up in Uncasville. He's here. He's here now. You know, I can reach out to him and touch him and... You know, God is here. He is in this place. Yeah, um, sure. But I think for Jacob, it's not so much that he's in the place geographically, but he's at this place in my life right now. He's in this circumstance. He's in this difficulty. He's in this phase of my life. He's in this season of my life. I didn't know that God was here in this place. You know what? God is here in this place. Like whatever place you're in, whatever place I'm in, God is in that place. Is he in this place? Sure. Wherever two or more are gathered, I'm there in their midst. But in that place that we are, God is there and Jacob is discovering that, that God is there. And, and we often in similar fashion are amazed to find out that God has been in all of these unusual circumstances and places in our lives. And we could parade person after person up here that could tell us about these places in our life that seemed hopeless. And sure enough, God was in that place. Sure enough, God was there. And so geographically, there's nothing to suggest that God is in that place. He's in a barren, rocky place. There's no mountains. There's no waterfalls. There's no forests. There's no eagles flying high. There's no little bunny rabbits, you know, playing around. There's no beauty. He's in an awful place. It's barren. It's rocky. There's nothing there. Yet God is in that place. And in his dream, there's a ladder with in his angels going up and down the ladder. And the ladder speaks about God. It speaks about Jesus coming down from heaven to us, from him taking us from here and bringing us up into heaven, the ladder, the ladder of God. And it's God initiating this, not Jacob. And then Jacob makes some vows. It's sort of interesting, the vows that he makes. Um, he um, he calls that place the house of God, Bethel, which it is. And this is the house of God. But also in the situation I'm in, mean, this is the house of God. This is where God is. God resides right here in my house, in my place. Second, sort of interesting with Jacob, maybe it's still his sort of wheeling and dealing. He says to God, I'm going to tithe to you. Everything I make from this point forward. Now, this is kind of interesting. Everything he makes from this point forward, he doesn't have anything. The only thing he has is a stick. And he told God that he's going to tithe from this this point forward. So he am stop seeing, you know, God's working in his life and something's going to happen. And these words that God said are probably going to come true. And so he, he tells God, I'm going to tithe. Tithe means tenth. Some people think tithe means giving. Tithe means tenth. That's what it means. And Jacob said that's what he was going to do. And so you get to chapters 29 through 33 and you find the rest of this story. 20 years of Jacob's life. He ends up with his uncle and his uncle is just like him. His uncle schemes, his uncle plays games, his uncle does bait and switch, just like his sister, just like Jacob. And uh, he works for this guy for years, ends up marrying there, ends up marrying two girls. Um, God doesn't tell us to marry two girls, but it happened in the ancient world often. And he did. He had all kinds of kids, and this guy, Laban, is taking advantage of him, deceiving him, scheming with him, and this guy just can't take it anymore. He just can't take it. I can't stand being taken advantage of anymore. I can't stand being lied to. I can't stand somebody scheming. I can't stand somebody deceiving. Jacob, that's who you are. That's who you are. That's what you've done. Isn't it funny how? We can't stand it in somebody else, but we justify it for ourselves. We always have a reason for ourselves that we can do it. So he decides, how old this guy now? This guy's going to run away from home again. <laughs> That's the story of his life. He's got a new home and now he's going to run away. He's always running away from home. And where's he going to go? He's going to go back home. He says this, this is amazing. He's he's talking, and he said, when I first crossed this brook, Jabbok, he said, all I had was this stick in my hand. And he said, now I'm going back, and I'm going back across the brook. And he said, I've got this family, and all of these kids, and I've got all of these manservants and women servants, people that were working for him. He said, I have all these flocks and all these herds, and all this gold, and all this silver. God has blessed me. I don't know, did he give God back the 10% or not? I don't know, he said he would. But when I first came across, I didn't have anything. And now I have all of this. And what's he going back to? He's going back home. He's going back home. Heading back. And as he's heading back, he's bringing all his family A messenger comes to him and says, you're going this way, but you need to know that your brother's coming the other way. And he said, my brother? And they said, yeah, your brother's coming out to meet you. You're coming home, but your brother's already on his way and he's coming to meet you. And he said, where is he? And he said, he's not so far away and he's got 400 armed men with him. Wow, 400 armed men. And this guy's got what? A couple of wives, some kids, some of these people who work for him, bunch of sheep, a bunch of goats. Now what else he might have? And his brother's coming at him. And so Jacob, because he's always, he's always got to figure it out. So what he does is he said this guy's gonna slaughter us. So he divides the group into a couple of groups and he tells one group, You go over this way, you go over that way, you know, I'll go straight down the middle, you know, maybe meet my brother. And then if he comes upon one of these groups, you know, he'll just slaughter them and the other one will get away, but at least some of it always oh, just conniving, always oh, just trying to make it work. He's already met God. He's already talked with God. You know, God has already met him. He wrestles with God. That night he wrestles with God. How long do you have to wrestle with God? He ends up meeting his match in his, in, 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 when he meets Laban. And now he's, with, uh, he's wrestling with God. And where's he wrestling with God? At the crossroads. Because that's always where we wrestle with God. We always wrestle with God at the crossroads. And God will allow things or put things in our lives that we're unable to handle so that it will drive us to Him. The ultimate dilemma that we can't handle is death. And death often becomes the impetus that draws people to God. But now Jacob's wrestling with God because his brother's coming. His brother's coming and he believes the promise of God but it don't look good right now 400 armed men when he's wrestling with God he's wrestling alone you and i when we wrestle with God you know what nobody else can do it for us we wrestle with God at the crossroads he's in a crisis He's in a situation that's out of the ordinary. He's in a situation that's out of the predictable. He's in a situation that's out of the familiar. He did not think his brother would be coming at him with 400 armed men. How long do we run away from God? How long do we stay away from God before God wins? And then Jacob has another scheme. I know what I'll do. I'm going to send this guy some junk. I'm going to go get him some Best Buy cards. And, you know, I think he probably likes the steak place. And and, and what he does is he he takes some flocks and herds and he has them brought to his brother. And now he's got all these flocks and herds coming to his brother. And his brother sees the flocks and the herds. And he said, What's this? What are these animals? What's this bleeding? What's it? What am I supposed to do with these animals? Who sent these animals? And they said, "Your brother sent these animals. My brother, why would my brother send me animals? I don't need no stinking animals. I need, I need my brother's head. Get the animals out of here. Scheme fails. Scheme falls apart. He's going to have to meet his brother face to face and his brother is holding a 20 year grudge. If we were in the book of Hebrews and we read a little bit further into chapter 12, it talks about his brother again, Esau. And it talks about him giving away the birthright and the things that happened there. But it's in the context of this. It says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up in you causing trouble that will defile many. So we're going to close with just two things here in this whole account. One of them is the 20-year grudge and the other one is the blessing. The first one, the 20-year grudge. It says in the context of Esau, don't let anything grow up in you, any offense, any root of bitterness, because it not only affects you, but it affects everyone around you. Did you know that? That when you hold grudges, when you hold bitterness inside of you, when you hold all of that stuff, you start to spill it on everyone around you. Spill it on everyone around you. And his mother said, oh, his, his anger will subside. I'll let you know when he's not angry anymore. It's not going to happen. He's going to hold on to it. One of my first experiences as a pastor, sitting with someone doing spiritual counseling, was this lady who had come to me, and she came to me to complain about her pastor. And so I was, uh, I was brand new in ministry. And I thought, this is stupid thinking. Uh, I thought, oh, you know, that pastor was bad to her. That's why she's coming to me. Yeah, right. What a dumb bill, um Thinking like that. So I'm listening to her story. And she's telling me stuff that this pastor did to her. Now I've been in ministry for 40 years and I can tell you that pastors have done stuff a lot worse than the story she was sharing with me. But, but she was telling me the stuff this pastor did and it was, it was like bad stuff. It was bad stuff. And I thought, man, that guy, like, that's crazy. You know, control and manipulation and power and all the junk, all the people junk. He was in a position where he could play that on her. So he did. And I'm listening and listening and thinking, man, that's bad. And then she would share something else. And I thought, man, that's terrible. And and I said to her, so I said, when did this happen? And she said, um, I think it was about 17 years ago. And I thought 17 years ago. Like, you're kidding me. Like 17 years ago. And we're sitting here talking like it's 17 minutes ago. That stuff just sticks with you and festers. And how many people do you think when you're holding the 20-year grudge or the 17-year-old grudge, how many people do you spill out on and affect them? And the scripture tells us, don't be like Esau. Don't hold on to those grudges. Don't let those things happen. Because instead of you being a vessel of blessing, you're just spilling all of this bitterness all around, just it's like salting everywhere you go. You know, just coming into the family gathering and just salting bitterness on everybody. You know, just coming into the Bible study and salting bitterness on everybody. Get rid of it, is what it says. But it's hard to get rid of. It's hard to get rid of. That's what we're going to pray about in a minute. Because many of us have experiences. Usually when you have those, that experience, it's because somebody did something to you facts on the ground. Esau was wronged. He was wronged. He was wronged by his mother. He was wronged by his brother. He was wronged. But God says of him in Hebrews 12, don't hang on to that stuff. You need to find a way to get rid of it. And so that's going to be part of our prayer in closing. The other part is going to be that Jacob did believe God and he did believe that he was going to inherit that blessing and that he was going to be the father of these people and that these people were going to be a blessing to the whole earth. He believed it and he gets to bless them. He gets to do it. The end of his life, he gets to bless them. And you can read about the blessings in Genesis where he blesses them. Let's have the worship team come up and get ready so we can close and pray a little bit and maybe we'll move in and out of the music and pray because I think the Lord wants to work in some of our lives. So he's going to bless them. And there's a book called The Blessing by John Trent. Anybody ever read that book? Somebody? Yes, The Blessing, John Trent. It's a great book. Um, You know what it's about? What do you think the book The Blessing is about? It's about the blessing. It's about the blessing. He talks about, and particularly for parents and particularly for dads, but parents, or anybody in authority, it, he says the blessing is something that you bestow upon somebody else. You bestow a blessing on them. And don't buy the book, it's $12.95. So I'm going to give you the whole summary of the book right now. And the summary of the book has five points. And the first point is meaningful touch. The blessing includes meaningful touch. This is why the doctrine of the laying out of hands is so important. You know, if you're new to the Lord and new to the fellowship of believers, you'll see people putting their hands on other people. You ever see that? People come up and they put their hands on them. The Bible calls that the laying out of hands. And sometimes it's done for succession, you know, of ministry or succession of blessing. Succession of family blessing. Succession of approval. My first experience in a church meeting, I was a homeless guy and I was bouncing around the USA. I only knew one person that was a believer in Jesus. They had just recently become a believer. Um, I'd left the state, was bouncing around and uh, when I came back to the state, I called them and uh, told them and they were happy to hear that I'd come to Christ. And so we went to a meeting on on a weeknight in New Haven. Now I'm still... I'm still this homeless guy, you know, like struggling with thinking right and probably mentally ill and filthy as can be and gnatted hair and takes me to a meeting. And at this meeting, there was a lady singing and there were people going up and putting their hand on people. I'd never seen that. Putting their hand on them. And so here I was, I thought I'm part of the family of God now. So I went up and put my hand on one of those people and I still think about, I wonder what that person thought when that stinky homeless guy (laughs) came up and put his hand on me. I wonder what they were doing. Do you you think they went immediately to the restroom and cleaned up a little bit? They probably were wishing that it was uh, the the days of COVID where there was hand sanitizer everywhere, but uh, the laying out of hands something about it, that meaningful touch. And Jacob lays his hands on his children. Point number one, meaningful touch. Point number two, spoken words. So you put your hand on there and you begin to speak some words. Any words? Probably any words will do. Just the whole idea of voice. Hearing the voice? If it's your dad's voice and your dad's hand is on you gently, just hearing the voice. But he said it it is the voice and it is the spoken words. but, But the voice and the spoken words end up attaching high value to it. I didn't get that. I did. words with high value attached to them. Like what? Like if it's a dad, hand on the back, hand on the shoulder, what could be a high value word? How about son? Son. Yeah. Yeah, dad, yeah. Yeah. Wow. God's putting his hand on me. God's putting his hand on you. Spoken words, his voice. Saying what? My son, my daughter. (sighs) Yes. Yes. And then in those words, picturing, picturing a special future, a future laid out for you. son, I don't know what God has for you. But if you listen to him and you follow him, you're going to end up with a life that's meaningful, where your life is going to pour out blessing to other people. Thanks, Dad. And, and, And number five is an act of commitment. To what? An act of commitment to spread the blessing wherever you go taking that which God has given to me, taking that which has had the hand on on my shoulder, the hand on my back, just hearing the voice, just hearing the tone of the voice, feeling the vibration of the voice. You know, even if you're deaf, you can often hear the vibration of the voice. That's why deaf people like to come to church and sit in front of the subwoofers, and everybody likes to complain at church. It's just, it's just part of what goes along with it. So they like to say, how come nobody turns up that bass? <laughs> I want to feel that. Feel that voice. Feel that vibration. Feel that hand on me. Hear those words. Hear my name. And know that my life is supposed to be a life that blesses other people. But if you're carrying the 17-year-old grudge, if you're carrying a 20-year-old grudge, you got to let it go. You got to let it go. I remember sitting in another one of those sessions with a young girl who had been brutalized. Brutalized. Man, was she withdrawn? Was she shy? She uh, she did not like men. And I told her, I said, you know, um, you need to let this stuff go. And she said, let it go? She said, do you know know what they did to me? I said, I do, you told me. And she said, you're telling me I need to let it go? I said, listen, here's how it works. The people who did this stuff to you, there's a good chance that right now, their conscience is seared, they feel no regret, they feel no guilt, and that they're sitting in the islands under the sun sipping pina coladas. And I said, you're here all broken and distressed, can't look at people, don't want to go out. I said, you need to to give it to God and understand that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. I'm going to tell you what. That room was a mess. Words and stuff was getting thrown all over the place. (laughs) But you know what? Doesn't mean you were not wronged. You were wronged. You are harmed. You were taken advantage of. It is wrong. Under any circumstance, it is wrong. But you are trapped. You are trapped. Same thing happened to Jesus. What do you mean, same thing happened to Jesus? Jesus was brutalized. You know, Jesus was sexually abused. No, he wasn't. Where was he sexually abused? You know, you see him on the cross, particularly, you know, a Catholic uh, crucifix, and he's got a little diaper on. He didn't have no diaper on. That guy, they took his clothes, they soiled his clothes, and they hung him up there naked for the shame for everybody to see him. Man, that's abuse. That's abuse on the highest level. And Jesus stood there and he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Let's stand up and pray because I think the Lord wants to get at some of us today. He wants to bless us and he wants us to be a blessing. He wants us to leave this place being an overflow, a spillover of blessing. But some of us, there's things that are distracting us. There's things that are holding us back. And we feel justified. Well, something did happen to you. A vengeance belongs to the Lord. Vengeance belongs to God, not to me. Jesus said, if you don't forgive from the heart, you're in trouble. And he talked about this parable in Matthew 18, where You know, one guy was forgiven and the other guy didn't forgive. And Jesus said, he'll be thrown into jail until he pays every last penny, the guy that wouldn't forgive. Because we've been forgiven such a great debt by Jesus Christ on the cross. He has forgiven us. He has washed us. He has made us clean. And now we're withholding from other people. Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And when Jesus said that in that parable He said, if you don't let it go, you're going to be in your own little private prison. Really, for how long? I don't know. 17 years? 20 years? 40 years? You're going to go to the grave like that? You ever meet people that are going to the grave like that? Let it go. Let it go. So, Father, right now, you are in this place Yeah, you're in the place physically because two or more are gathered. There's more than two of us here. But you're in this place, Lord, right now. So God, I'm going to ask that you would show us in our minds, in our mind's eye, things we need to let go of, people we need to forgive, people we need to turn over to you so that vengeance will belong to you and not to us. Lord, may you free us from the curse of Esau where our lives become torture to ourselves, bitterness of soul and harmful to others. Lord, we don't want to be harmful to others. We don't want to be harmful to our families. We don't want to be harmful to our friends. We don't want to be harmful to the people we're in Bible studies with. Free us. Lord, give us the power even in this moment to just let it go. To just let it go. And so, Lord Jesus, I let it go. I give it to you. So I was wronged. You were wronged on the cross. Lord, you who knew no sin became sin for us so that in you we might become the righteousness of God. And there's one more thing here and that's that um, it might be that you have not come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the one who forgives you. He will forgive you for all of the harm that you have done to other people. He will forgive you for all of the harm that you have done in this world. He will He will restore you from all of the harm that has been done to you. He will be the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will give you great promises and he will keep them. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I come to you and I ask for forgiveness of sin and I ask that you would wash me and cleanse me and that you would give me new life and then you would give me eternal life. So I pray that prayer. I'm going to pray it again and maybe this time pray it in your head. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm coming to you. I'm like Jacob in that moment, Lord, where there I am, Lord, all alone at the crossroads, you and me wrestling it out. I surrender, I surrender to you, I give up to you. You can come, you can be my Lord, you can be the Lord of my life, you can be my savior. You can give me better quality of life now and you can give me life everlasting, because I trust you, I believe you, Jesus. Who else could I believe in this life if I couldn't believe you, Jesus? So I believe you. So if you're in this room, and uh, that's your prayer, you're giving yourself to Jesus today. Um, would you throw, throw your hand up for a moment so I can see it? Anybody here that this morning you are surrendering to Jesus? But I see somebody doing that. May the Lord bless you. You can put your hand down. We see that. Anybody else? Yes, no? Says that all of heaven rejoices when one soul, re, when one soul repents, comes to Jesus. So, Lord, we are grateful, we are thankful. And now may the Lord bless you. What song is that you're playing? What is it? Oh, go ahead, start that song. And then we'll sing, we'll sing again in a minute. We're gonna just bless everybody. That we would be a blessing.
1: die for me, amazing love, I know it's true, it's my joy. You say I'm accepting.
0: may the Lord make you a blessing may you receive the blessing of God the promise of God that he's put on your life just like he made very specific promises to these guys he's making the promise to us that our life will be a blessing that our lives will be a blessing to those in our home that our lives will be a blessing to those who are around us to our family to our extended family to our friends, to our co-workers, to a world that's desperate, to a world that's lost. So may the Lord touch you and may He heal you. May you receive the forgiveness of God right now. Everything you've done, everything you've harbored, turn it over and may you receive His blessing. May you receive his blessing when you come in. May you receive it when you go out. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. And may God give you peace, the peace that passes all understanding. Having peace with God. May he now make you a peacemaker. May he show you places in your life where you can make peace with others. May he show you places in your life where you can be used to mend harm that's happened between others. May the Lord use you to bring people to the Savior, Jesus Christ. You are loved, you are loved, you are loved. Peace, grace, and mercy in Jesus' name. You're loved. So we'll have some food. Let's uh, sing this chorus one more time.
1: You are my king. You are my king. Jesus, you are my King. Jesus, you are my King. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my King, would die for me? ¡Gracias! So
0: uh, there's uh, oh sorry there's. Uh